0: Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. There
1: goes a fly ball towards left field. Going back fast is Kennedy. Kennedy gets there, and he takes it. And the Cleveland Indians
0: are the world champions of 1948. And they are leaping joyously as they go off the field. Dean is being mobbed as our ruleful draw. And out of center field, Tucker and Kennedy come running in, arm in arm.
1: A little tap up in the air, third base side waiting is Tommy foul territory. The game is over, and the Indians have won the divisional title. Indian fans have waited 41 years,
0: and now they can really cheer. Now the pitch swung in lined to deep left field. It is goal! You should see the celebration. The Indians' third base dugout, Rajay Davis, a bullet, two run homer down the left field line, clearing the 19 foot wall. We are tied at six. This is our tribe history presented by Progressive. A regular look back at professional baseball history in Cleveland since 1901
1: and beyond. Now, here's your host, Indians team historian,
0: Jeremy Fedor.
1: Hello, Tribe fans, and welcome back to another episode of Our Tribe History, presented by Progressive. In this episode, we're going to look at the 1920 season, kind of skim over the early parts. Again, I don't want to necessarily get into the uh, Particular games, you can go on Baseball Reference and look at those if you're really interested in the uh, the nuts and bolts of every game in that season. Rather, we're going to kind of take a, uh, a broader approach. Look at the pennant race of that season and uh, two key members of that team that actually didn't show up until about the last month of the season that really helped Cleveland get over the hump, and finish September strong and clinch the AL pennant. Also on this episode, I have another interview with Scott Longert, who is the author of the the most definitive book on that 1920 team and everything that kind of led up to that. And he's actually written several other books of the about the Indians around that era, kind of a, a trilogy, so to speak. He's uh, fantastic read. If you haven't had a chance to pick up any of his works, uh, I would suggest it if you want to get more into uh, the Indians' history. So we mentioned on a previous podcast that the tribe was favored. A lot of writers were picking them to uh, take the AL crown. They were going to be challenged, some said by the Yankees, by uh, the White Sox, who were coming off, the or were the defending AL champions. So the Indians had their work cut out for them they had Tris Speaker his first full season as a a manager he obviously came out um, midway through the season when the tribe fired uh, their previous manager after Babe Ruth hit a home run and uh, again we discussed that a little more in the past but nevertheless the expectations were extremely high here Scott describes the the fast start of the club
0: yeah, they had a good April and May. Yeah, they were they came out very strong. Yeah, if I remember, Bagby and Kovaleski were combined like something like seventeen and one by the end of May, something like that, or seventeen and two. They uh, and then Ray Caldwell got hot about a month later, and he started winning a lot of games. So their their pitching was just outstanding from the from uh, opening day through the whole season.
1: Speaking of Kovaleski, he uh, was tabbed for his. Fourth opening day start or fourth straight opening day start, which was a franchise record at that point. Uh, they were taking on St. Louis Browns in Cleveland, and again, lots of excitement. There was the Mayor's Rooter Club, which I love. These Rooters Club. If you ever look at um, Boston's got the Royal Rooters, and uh, I would urge you to Google it's uh, McGreevy and the Royal Rooters. It was just this ultimate fan club, they'd come marching into the stadium and uh, sing songs and I guess sort of like like soccer teams now have all these chants and cheers and really a neat uh, fan group and Cleveland had a few of them but nothing that was ever famous they had a few songs they would sing but again nothing that is is remembered but in 1920 they they did have a few of those and then uh the mayor was also the honorary first pitch to open the uh open the season. So I, I think there's probably a project in there if someone wanted to track down every single opening day, uh, first pitch, it would be a lot of work, but usually the paper would mention them. So for, for that game, it was Mayor Davis. So it's not a, uh, a new tradition by any means of having someone of some celebrity throwing out the first pitch. Kovaleski struck out the first batter of the season, which was setting the pace for him as he ended up being the American League leader in strikeouts that season. And not only was it Kovaleski having a great season, but also Jim Bagby. Bagby himself ended up winning his first eight starts of the season. So again, there's a strong start with both Kovaleski and uh, Bagby. And the Tribe really needed that to, to compete with the White Sox and with New York. Both having a strong starts to the season. In the first few months of the season, the Tribe was putting up great numbers. They finished April at eight and three. May they went eighteen and eight, which ran the record to twenty six and eleven. June they finished seventeen and eleven, so that put them at forty three and twenty two. And they were in first place for much of May. Boston took over for a few days, and pretty much all of June, uh, Cleveland was was in first place. The tribe kept it going in July. They finished twenty two and ten, so they were twelve games over five hundred in a month, and you know it's really what you want to shoot for. And they were uh, holding their own against you know the challengers for the American League pennant. However, with that nineteen twenty season, so much of it leads up to. The Chapman incident at the polo ground and the crossroads that put the team at because you're battling the Yankees for first place and something like that happens. Now the tribe was able to win that game. Kovaleski got the win and at uh, that point he was 19 and nine. So he was having a, a great season, but you lose a player on your team, not only just to injury, but he, he died. It, it's hard to imagine coming back from that and at that point, the the tribe kind of hit the skids. Um, and I think a lot of that obviously has to do with the entire whirlwind situation. I can't imagine the guys were in any sort of mood to play baseball at that point. And here Scott describes the, the whirlwind events of the Chapman funeral, and then they were almost immediately back playing baseball.
0: Yeah, they only got one day off. They only got one game canceled. So they, so they could come, they came in late, uh, I believe it was Thursday night or they got an early Thursday morning for the Friday funeral. And then they had to leave Friday night for Boston to uh, go and play a doubleheader. I think to make up the game that they uh, that they canceled. So they had the players had virtually no time. They just had to come in town from the East Coast and attend the funeral and try and deal with that. Then they had to get back on a train and go back to the East Coast, which even in good circumstances that's not a great idea. You know, you got to be exhausted from that, from all that train travel in, in like twenty four hours. But they went and they they got beat. You know, they got beat. Pretty bad i think they were shut out both games and they looked you know it was obvious they their hearts were not in that were not in it and it would take them about two weeks or more to rally they uh lost a lot of games and things looked grim but they uh but they were able to pull themselves together and uh, get back on track and uh and they got back in first place and then they won it
1: going into august the tribe actually had a four-game lead in the american league they ended up going 6-8 and eight in the games leading up to Chapman's uh, death, and they then ended up being tied for for the AL now, as Scott mentioned, that didn't do many favors of going back to Cleveland and coming back to Boston because they had to make up those games too, so they played a doubleheader on a Saturday, had Sunday off, and played another doubleheader against Boston on that Monday, but those first two games back, the combined score of both of them were 16 to zero. so again was not the greatest atmosphere for Cleveland and when you see your American League lead disappear like that, that also can't be uh be helpful for morale in the immediate 10 games after the tribe returns from Ray's funeral they go three and seven and fall three and a half games back uh, in in the American League so. Again, the season easily could have gone off the rails at this point. And this is where the Tribe gets a boost from two players that one is a Hall of Famer, one is a name that many people, unless you're a hardcore baseball fan, probably wouldn't recognize. But these two gentlemen come and they give Cleveland a sorely needed boost. It was reported already by August 19th, uh, that Joey Sewell was not going to be coming to the Indians anytime soon. The manager of the uh, New Orleans team wanted to keep Sewell with the New Orleans club to see if they could uh, do anything in the Southern Association race uh, for their for their pennant. So Sewell was a, a prospect for the Indians. He had just finished school at Alabama, and uh, as many will see, becomes a heck of a major league ball player. Joey Sewell has a wonderful oral history at the Cleveland Public Library, and you can actually listen to that online. But he's got this uh, slow southern drawl that just makes his his speaking easy listening. And uh, it has to be easy listening because his oral history, I think, is somewhere like an hour and a half or two hours long. But he tells some great tales. And here is uh, Scott with kind of a summary of some of that as well.
0: Joe was uh, from Titus, Alabama, a very small farm community. That's where he was born. His younger brother was Luke, of course, who caught for the Indians for many years, and he managed uh, later the St. Louis Browns to a pennant. Um, Joe... I'm trying to remember. Yeah, Joe was the one that his dad, his dad was a doctor who went around the countryside, uh, in horse and buggy, but that was getting difficult in the early part of the 20th century. So his dad ordered a, uh, a Model T from, uh, from Henry Ford. And in those days, they'd ship you the car on a rail, and they'd sh- with a, an instructor came with the car. And the guy was there to teach his dad how to drive and operate the car. But Joe learned as well. I think Joe was maybe 13 or 14, but he wound up driving the car and chauffeuring his dad around the county to see his patients. So he got uh, exposed to driving at an early age. He uh, went to the University of Alabama. He was a great football player as well as a baseball player. I think they. Uh, uh, they might have won the conference title in baseball, but every year that Joe played, he was he was outstanding. And then the Indians signed him for New Orleans just in 1920. So he had just started in the minor leagues, and uh, New Orleans was their top farm club. So he was playing at a high level. And when Chapman, uh, when Chapman passed away, it wasn't immediate. They tried a couple of guys there, uh, Harry Lunte, and then they tried to move Joe Evans to short. And uh, Lunte got injured, and Evans couldn't do it. So they uh, they decided to bring up Joe Sewell and to buy his major league contract and bring him up.
1: Another player that really changed the fortunes for Cleveland was a guy named John Walter Duster Males. And he was pitching out at the Sacramento club of the Pacific coast league. Now Males had some previous major league baseball experience, but he had been sent back down and kind of floated around for a little bit until Cleveland signed him. Males was that left-hander that Cleveland had been looking for He was recommended the Trist Speaker by uh, Frank Chance, who was a former manager of the Cubs, also played for the uh, Cubs as well. Um, Chance said he was the best Southpaw in the PCL and one of the best left-handers in the game today. So that's a a bold assessment of a guy that, again, hasn't been in the major leagues for a few years. Like Smokey Joe Wood mails, his baseball reference page reads by his uh, nickname, Duster. And he actually had a few nicknames, but uh, with Duster, you might wonder, well, how did a guy get a uh, a nickname like that? And I figure since um, his baseball reference page listed, it's pretty important to who he is. So the, the story goes that when he was pitching in the PCL with Seattle, they were playing Spokane in a game, beating them up 5-0. And in the sixth inning, the Spokane team was so disgusted that that they were getting beat that they didn't even send out coaches when they went to bat. So males and another player went out and we're going to be the first base and third base coach for uh, Spokane. And that kind of rubbed Spokane the wrong way. One of their players started chirping. Then, you know, he had some back and forths, and it kind of ended with this player daring Duster to hit him when he was up next, but Duster didn't take the bait. Now the next day, he did, and he he admits that he was trying to hit him with the ball uh, in his first at-bat. So when you're trying to back a player off the plate or throw at him, you're trying to dust him off, and hence the nickname Duster stuck with him from that incident, at least according to one story. And here's Scott talking about Duster Males.
0: Yeah, he was a real outgoing guy. Uh, I think he was so much charismatic, a fun-loving guy who who liked the ladies when he was a bachelor. There was a story, I think it was probably in the file, you may have come across it, where uh, he was pitching on the West Coast and he was being interviewed and he was aware of all the girls that liked him. And uh, he's mentioned some about food and he said something like, what I really love is like a home-baked chocolate cake. That's my absolute favorite. And then the next day before game time, these girls deliver about 12 different chocolate cakes with with their names on them. Him. So he was kind of a sly, sly devil, really really enjoying himself. He, uh, I think he grew if I remember, he grew up near Folsom Prison, right in, in uh, somewhere around there. And he wound up playing on an amateur team against the, the inmates. So he did that several times, playing playing in prison, doing that. But I think he, I wouldn't call him eccentric, but I think he was a real outgoing guy, liked to have fun, didn't take things too seriously at all, yeah, and that that was his personality. And that, of course they called him Duster, you know that was for for a reason. Reason he threw pretty hard inside at people and his control wasn't the greatest, so he had he couldn't really dig in against them because you knew you might get one right in your ear, you know, if you weren't paying attention, and that was that was part of his part of his game, I guess, and it was enough that uh, attracted the Indians in 1920 because they wanted another starter and he was putting up big numbers out in the Pacific coast league and they decided he'd be their guy. And, uh, they brought him here and he pitched uh, fantastic. You know, he, I think you believe he won six out of seven starts and really helped them down the stretch when they needed it. And that big game against Chicago, he, uh, pitched in a game, he had the bases loaded, nobody out, and he got out of it, and we won the ball game. That was a key victory they needed in late September. And he went on to pitch uh, excellent in the World Series. I think he, he went a uh, complete game and six and two-thirds innings of relief without giving up a single run. So he, had, uh, he, was, he, was, up, he was up with the team from uh, late August through the World Series, but he was a huge contributor in, in that time to help him uh, get the pennant and then uh, win the World Series.
1: The Plain Dealer tracked Males, uh, his journey to Cleveland, and had a little fun with his name, because on uh, August 28th, it said, Walter Males, the new Indian's pitcher, has not yet arrived from the coast. This is causing no annoyance. All the Males are slow these days. So uh, I guess it's a 1920s uh, dad joke, if you will. Going back to what Scott says, the Indians got their their act together, so to speak, and it was starting to be noticeable in the papers, too. On August 29th, the plane dealer mentioned, yesterday was the first time since the death of Chapman that players showed any signs of pep in that game. They had 21 hits and 15 runs. Uh, but the the big, big news was that Tris Speaker was looking a lot better. Now, you obviously need your best player to be putting forth his best performance and speaker was terribly affected by the death of Chapman and the incidents surrounding the funeral and the the fight that went on. So to have speaker getting back to his um, MVP caliber self was what the tribe needed. The paper said the manager sets the example speaker is looking better and every day is gaining strength Wednesday. He was pale and weak having lost 15 pounds. Today, he looks like the Speaker of old and is grooming his ball club for a driving finish. They had a few quotes from Speaker. He said, we are not out of the pennant race. Those two games dropped by the White Sox yesterday and today make the race much closer. We are in second place by a narrow margin, but Chicago is leading by only two games. This is not so bad when you consider that of the last 17 games played, we have won but five. Our slump has come to an end. It has to end sometime, and now that we have it out of our system, watch us go. Speaker continued on, saying, The boys have recovered their spirits and are playing smart baseball. That's all I can ask of them. Bagby, Kowaleski, and Caldwell are pitching good ball. Morton and Clark are likely to turn in a good game at any time. He said, These pitchers will be helped by Walter Males, who arrived today. I expect to use Males in Washington. So he had uh, the reinforcement coming in with with Walter Males, and the team was hopefully turning that corner and making that sprint towards the the AL pennant. And in that same paper, it mentioned uh, some wonderful reports about Joey Sewell. So you had Males and Sewell kind of coming, not necessarily to the rescue of the team, but really helping a team that was pushing forward towards the end and just that extra little oomph that they needed. On September 8th, then, it was a, a big news day in Cleveland. The Tribe was uh, just clinging to first place and had the Yankees coming into town for a a, a huge series towards, uh, again, seasons winding down. The big news was, again, this was the first visit of the Yankees to Cleveland since the death of Ray Chapman. One of the owners made the point that it probably wouldn't be a, a good idea for Carl Mays to join the club. And, was on record saying we are not taking Mays to Cleveland, not because we think there's any danger of any trouble, but out of respect to the feelings of the people there. We don't want to offend them. It's largely a matter of sentiment. So uh, that was one half of of the news. The other half was that Joey Sewell is on his way to Cleveland. Tris Speaker and the Indians then were pinning their hopes on this untested rookie shortstop. And Scott has an interesting story of Joe's trip to cleveland from the south
0: he was on his way up and just had a cotton suit on and the conductor on the train with him said uh, you know young man it gets fairly cold in uh, cleveland you're going to need a, a wool suit so when they had a layover in cincinnati the conductor took him to a tailor who uh, overnight made him a wool suit and got it to him before the train left so he had something for uh, mid late september and october in cleveland
1: and there's an additional anecdote that appeared in the Plain Dealer that's kind of similar of this kid from the South having no idea what fall and winter weather was like in Cleveland, but one can assume that Sewell learned pretty quickly. Again, to say that this entire season was made for a movie is a bit of a an understatement, and it's highlighted with Henry Edwards, the sports writer for the Plain Dealer, where he says. Every series the Cleveland Indians play from now on may be termed crucial, but the three-game clash with the Yankees that starts tomorrow may be considered crucial to the nth degree, as New York comes to town, close at the heels of the Indians, and striving to win the pennant. So this was a big series with all the fanfare. Uh, There was a, a band coming to the game from. Babe Ruth School, the St. Mary's Industrial School in Baltimore, uh, coming all the way to League Park to uh, root on Babe Ruth. So again, the atmosphere must have been fantastic. I mean, to be a fly on the wall for this series that meant so much to both teams' pennant hopes would be a a phenomenal one to get a ticket to. And the Tribe actually took that first game on September 9th. Joey Sewell had gone into town and worked out prior to the game, but... Again, you're not going to rush a kid into his first major league game right when he gets off the train. As Scott mentioned, I think earlier, Joe Evans, they had kind of moved him around a little bit, had made two errors, but they didn't cost them much in the game. And going back to that made-for-movie aspect, of course it it's going to be the Yankees' first trip back to Cleveland that Joey Sewell is uh, with the club. The guy trying to replace fan favorite Ray Chapman, against the team that, you know, the incident happened. But the Plain Dealer mentioned that fans displayed goodwill towards the Yankees. Um, There were 14,000 fans at that September 9th game and said they were good sportsmanship and uh, held the New York club uh, as a unit guiltless of the unfortunate accident to Ray Chapman at the Polo Grounds last month. With Carl Mays absent, they accepted the Yankees, as they always have, as friendly enemies mentioned to you there was no jeering or hooting no hissing uh, but to the contrary roger peckinpah a cleveland boy received a warm round of applause as he went to bat in the first inning babe ruth received his customary ovation first when he went to bat and later when he came through with a home run all in all cleveland could be proud of the actions of its baseball enthusiasts yesterday on the occasions that the first game of the yankees in cleveland since the accident to chapman so again the fans uh, maybe the fact that the Yankees decided not to bring Mays, it really was a, a sign to Cleveland fans that, that New York understood the situation. Duster's first start actually was quite a bit of a disaster. He didn't make it past the second inning. A uh, speaker actually pulled him after, or in the second inning, he ended up giving it two hits, had four earned runs, a couple walks, uh, and a home run. But he settled down his next few starts. His, his next start actually against St. Louis, he went nine innings and got the win. had a relief appearance against the Yankees in a loss, but that ended up winning uh, his next five games pretty convincingly, too. He went uh, nine innings for, for all the games and really gave the Tribe uh, the boost that they needed. Scott mentioned a game where he got himself in a, in a pickle, especially late in the season. It was September 24th against the White Sox before the uh, the news came down about the White Sox. And Duster was facing the full force of the White Sox team. Now, after everything happened, the plane Dealer wrote this glowing review about how this is going to be remembered forever, This uh, this inning he had. And as it goes... He starts the top of the fifth by striking out first batter, but then he ends up walking the next three, and he's got to face Buck Weaver and Eddie Collins, and and both of which strike out. The paper gets into a little more detail about the, the pitches of the at-bat, and there's a few foul balls that I think put a, a knot in everyone's throat, but um, the Tribe was clinging to a 2 nothing lead, and they were only going to score two runs in this entire game, so they ended up winning 2 nothing in this late season game, all thanks um, to uh, a Duster males. Now, granted he was the one that got himself in this mess, but he was also the one to get himself out of the mess. So that's where Duster really uh, made a name for himself and settled in like a veteran and really got the job done. It mentioned that speaker was wanting to get pitchers up uh, in a hurry when this situation started unfolding, but Duster settled down and did what he needed to do and got out of the inning. Then came October 2nd, the magical day that the tribe finally clinched that first pennant. Uh, They rode Jim Bagby to his 31st win in a 10 to one complete game against the Detroit Tigers. The way the plane dealer covered it too, it really made it sound like the fans were in shock that it actually finally happened. So many close calls in the past it actually happened and they said no club was ever more deserving of the championship for there was never a club that fought more cleanly more squarely and with more energy it met accidents that would have disheartened an ordinary team but cleveland fortunately had a team above the ordinary one that had a human dynamo and tris Speaker directing it and that's where we leave it next week on our tribe history presented by progressive we're going to focus on that 1920 world Series and all those historical moments that came with it.
0: You've been listening to Our Tribe History presented by Progressive with your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor.